Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Let's get started. On this best of episode of DealQuest, we talk about the best of our guests on financing. And we have four that we're focusing on of the many that we've had you know, over time. And I love the progression and the different types of uh, people we have here and the different types of funding sources for all types of businesses, all sizes of businesses that you know we're going to discuss on this best of episode. So we've got Ked Mao from Target Funding. We got Joel Block from Bullseye Capital. We have Niall Saran from PopDog. And then we have Peter Dolch from, uh, and on his funding side from Aon Foundry. All these folks bring different aspects and thoughts and experience to the funding, you know, and financing game and, and have, you know, like extensive, extensive experience in their particular areas. So if you want to find out how to best fund a company of any size or whether you should fund a company, definitely this episode's worth listening to. So we're going to kick it off with an excerpt from Kedma O. A target Funding, episode 26, if you want to listen to her full episode. And she's got an amazing book out called Target Funding. And she's going to talk about how companies of all different sizes, you know, places, et cetera, can raise capital from all different sources. So let's hear some uh, great wisdom from Kedma. I look at target funding this way. Typically, when we're working with clients, if we had the image right now of a pizza pie, because I like pizza, right? We have an image of a pizza pie. Most people see target just plain funding as one actual funding source as the entire pie. They'll come to me and say, I want the lender. I want the investor. And what I look at is I look at the pie as 12 slices. Mm. Every single slice is a different funding source. So when we look at target funding, we're looking at variables that fit the particular business. So I can give a quick example if it helps. Yeah, that would be great. Please do. Okay. So let's say I'm working with someone who is based in Atlanta, Georgia, happens to be Hispanic and a woman and served in the military. And they've come up with a technology-based business that focuses on communication through engagements online, but they have a passion in also maybe serving the autism community. Mm -hmm. Every single piece of what I just said can be tied to funding. There's funding for women, Hispanic, autism support, technology, military, uh, military, exactly. And so what I did and how I figured the game is instead of going and saying, well, we're going to go to the bank. No, we targeted the needs that the client wanted based on the variables unique to them and then went after the funds. Wow. You know, there's so many things about that that excite me. In my intro, you've heard it and the, my yes. listeners have heard it. I say we discuss every, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals you can do even without significant capital. And one of the things that I often talk about is the myths around like some small business owners think 
entrepreneurs think that uh, if they don't have significant capital, they can't do deals. Well, first of all, there's many deals you can do without any capital. Yeah. But then also, I love this conversation like that there are also, you know, people think about bank loans and they've heard about mm-hmm. maybe venture capitalists and private equity. But beyond that, a lot of people don't know all the other options out there and there are so many. So, exactly. you know, this is it's great. So your book is providing a great service. So, so talk to us a little bit more about some examples, you know, sure. these loan programs, grant programs, all kinds, of, you know, what, what, like how do they show up? You know, uh, are they governmental? Are they, you know, what, all the different sectors? I mean, I, I'm somewhat familiar with this, but you're the experts. So tell, let, let's hear. So to your point, it could be all over. It could be government grants, but government grants, it could also be local, state. It could be assigned to a nonprofit agency. It could be a for-profit organization trying to increase a certain, you know, demographic or it could be, you know, so it is everywhere. Here's what I tell anyone I'm working with. There is every single day of the week, a funding party happening in multiple places. Mm -hmm. The problem is, is most people don't have a ticket to the party and they can't even crash the party because they don't know the party exists. Right. Right. So, and to your point, One of the things we deal with all the time is it's not that the funding is not there because I will give you some real examples. It's when the funding shows up, you only have a period of time to go after it. Mm -hmm. So you have to be mindful. You have to have someone or yourself monitoring the funding, knowing when it comes out and then applying for it. Here's an example. A few months ago in our state, I'm based in Oregon, there was a very unique program that just came out out of an organization called Prosper Portland. And it was a very tight window. I think it was about three weeks to apply. And it was, I think, about $25,000 as a grant per year for five years. Mm. That's $125,000. Here were the variables. They were looking for people who had businesses in Portland. So that was the first variable. You had to be a for-profit. It was not open to nonprofit. Second variable, you had to be in business at least a year. You know, they want a year or less. They wanted more of a startup. So, you know, you couldn't do it if it was 10 years. You had to have something that you needed, like working capital, not like bad debt. So, you know, maybe a website or consulting, something that they could help with. So that's four variables already. Fifth variable, you had to be black or Mm African-American. Sixth variable, you had to be in the marijuana or cannabis business. (laughs) Got it. Okay. So the people who knew about it or had the advocates who knew about it applied and got it. The people who didn't know about it that were in the same category who had the variables and didn't apply, didn't get it. So I love Kedma's analogy of a pizza pie and the the different slices and each slice being a funding source. And she gave a couple of examples in this little excerpt of how those different funding sources become available and where you find them. And in fact, you got to take advantage of them quickly. But she has like just a list of stories and examples in the full episode. So go check her out on episode 26. Next up is Joel Block. Joel has uh, become a good uh, friend of mine through the National Speakers Association, former president of the NSA Los Angeles chapter. And he was all the way back on episode four. And Joel is a guy that just lives in the world of funding and money. You know, he teaches people how to raise capital, mainly in, in the real estate space, in terms of the seminars that his company puts on. But he's, you know, just first in raising capital in general. And in this excerpt, He's going to talk about some concepts around uh, companies raising money from professional investors. So let's hear what he has to say. If you can get strategic money, strategic money is always fantastic. And actually, a lot of companies, large companies, Intel, Microsoft, a lot of the big tech companies have started, you know, almost like incubators 
to make strategic investments in all kinds of companies. I mean, this has become very popular where these big companies, they are looking for alignment. And I understand from, you know, I mean, I go to venture capital conferences and I'm still around a lot of these guys, even though I'm not in the venture business so much anymore. But these big companies are not demanding terribly onerous terms. I mean, they, uh, they may have a first round of refusal, but they're not tying you up in knots the way the venture capital companies do. Uh, these big companies who are these big strategic investors, they are really looking for companies, uh, even some of the airlines. I mean, JetBlue, I think, does some of this stuff. And I mean, companies are looking for ways to be innovative, ways to grow, ways to get their arms around some new ideas. And, you know, listen, the way the, the ecosystem works, little companies innovate, big companies operate. We just work together that way. So little companies come up with all these ideas and big companies buy those ideas and make little guys rich. And that's the way that it works. And then the big company who got the idea that, that we came up with then takes it to whatever the next level is going to be for them or for that idea. And it's a very good synergy. You can't always count on this kind of capital. It's not always the best capital. You probably will get better pricing on strategic capital because there's another incentive for the investor other than just their straight return on investment in a cash sense. So you'll probably get better terms. You might get less expensive capital. But on the other hand, you know, you might get some great partners for life. I mean, hey, listen, the company that invested in me all those years ago, I'm still friends with a couple of the senior executives that worked with me years and years ago. So it's quite extraordinary to have friends from 25 years ago, you know, from these very large companies that, that you know, now are retired and, you know, that are kind of far along in, in their life or their career. But, you know, we've all kind of grown up together and that's, you know, part of it. So it was a great way for me to make a lot of nice friends. That's great. And, you know, you've trained so many people who are looking to uh, put funds together to raise capital, to invest in real estate and other things. And, uh, you know, you've had, so you have a great sampling of the ones who've been successful, the ones who've been not successful. What stands in the way of the people who are not successful? And and what should, what are some of the tips the successful people should know about raising capital? Because it seems daunting to a lot of people who uh, don't live it every day like you. Well, let's say the guy's name is Bill, (laughs) who's trying to raise capital. You know what stands in Bill's way? What's that? Bill. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so say more, say more about that. <laughs> Raising capital is an art form, but there are very specific things that people can do. Somebody who's done about 15 or 20 deals uh, reached out to me this morning and they said, Joel, uh, we're kind of going to the next level. Uh, would you take a look at one of my deals and tell me how to fine tune this? And they, because they reach out to their attorney And the first thing I said is, I said, look, I never, ever let the attorney structure the business arrangements of the deal. I give them the business arrangements, the terms that I want, and then they write it down correctly. And then they also put in all the legal terms. I don't ever tell them how to do that part, but I never let them work on the business terms. So as I'm reading uh, this person's operating agreement and some of their documentation, the operating agreement really describes the relationship between the manager of the deal and the investors. This manager has left so much stuff on the table because whoever helped her put this deal together uh, didn't know to ask for a lot of things that they probably need or should have put in the deal. They didn't put in fees. The way that they did their uh, capitalization, their their waterfall, the the way the payouts work really is not investor friendly. Now, some people would say, well, that's, that's fine that it's not investor friendly. That protects the promoter. But here's the thing you always have to balance. You always have to balance giving a good deal to the investors and getting a good deal for the promoter. 
whoever the promoter is, whoever the company is that's raising the capital. Because if the terms are onerous or they're unfair, or they're not investor friendly, then the investors aren't going to contribute the capital. And if they don't contribute the capital, then you're not going to be successful as the promoter who wants to raise the money. So I love Joel's discussion on strategic investors and strategic money and the difference between that and financial investors. And that's something that you know we've talked about before, and it's an underutilized way to raise capital. And as Joel said, often it's on better terms. You know, I also love his concept about how little companies innovate and big companies operate. And really little companies are then bought by big companies. So those insights and many, many more you know, are on the full episode and on episode four. One of the other things he talks about there is in the new tax law is all these uh, empowerment zones that we created and how to take advantage of those as well. So definitely check them out on episode four. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. Now we're going to go to Niles Saron. Niles is, uh, you know, from Pop Dog. He's episode 33. And Niles always, always has an interesting take on everything that he talks about. And I love his uh, sort of caution and some of the things he talks about through the entire episode. And one of the things that we're going to focus on in this excerpt is this conversation of not raising money to solve the wrong problem. So let's listen to Niles. We find ourselves in a world where we are often entrepreneurs are raising money to solve the wrong problem. Because they, it is easier to blame the unknown unknown or the known unknown than the known known, right? right. If it's easier for me to say the marketing is the problem, the organization is the problem, the capital is the problem, I don't have, I need a salesperson, whatever, than to say my product isn't good enough. What I found is that that's usually not because the product isn't actually good enough, but the product just hasn't been right-sized and tailored. The most amazing suit in the world, a Tom Ford suit, is going to look like it came off the rack if you don't have a tailor measure it for you. Right. Right. It has zero to do with product quality, with integrity, with any of that. It has everything to do with your ability to tailor it to your customer and make it actually work for them. So in helping companies raise money over the course of a year and a half, I realized that what I was actually good at and interested in, often you will find in life that they are the same, is helping people make their product actually work. Mm. That was always much more interesting to me than raising money. And frankly, raising money is kind of a con job, right? So when you raise money from anyone, mm -hmm. someone who wants to give you money, someone who doesn't want to give you money, you are fundamentally convincing them that whatever their concerns are, are not as concerning as they think. Mm -hmm. And you can do that by being totally honest all the time. And you should. But... You're probably not going to tell them about how about the near the near miss incidents that you've had in the course of running your business, right? You're not going to say this one time I almost put myself out of business because I didn't understand that not all factories in China are made equal. Some have pre-existing certifications that allow them to pass without extra testing, six month delay import testing the products and I could put them directly into retail, mm. right? 
usually what you do the first time you've ever sent something to China to get manufactured is you say, I need 5,000 pieces. I found a company in China that can make it. They sent me back a sample. It was good. You think you're doing all the right things. What you didn't know is that Walmart will never take that product. Right. Because it doesn't have the certification that tells me it's not, it's flame retardant. It is not built with, you know, hexane. It is not, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And so, like, we spend all this time going through the wrong motions to try to make something happen that just doesn't really work anymore. I would much rather be on the side of things that says, you don't need money to get the Chinese factory. Like, you need money to bring the right people in. Or more specifically, if all you need is money, you can go get it. That was a very long-winded and circuitous path. So sorry about that. But like the truth of it is that if all you need is money, you will have no problem getting money. Niles, I really want you to, like, I love that you made that point because people who don't know, who haven't been through it, who are thinking about maybe starting businesses or running businesses that have never raised capital, you hear so often that the issue is access to capital. We don't have capital. We can't get money. Etc. And and listen, let's face it. I just actually recorded a podcast today, you know, with another uh, person who works with women. And you know, she gave me all the stats on how women, la- you know, raise a lot less money and and women of color, yeah. women of color especially, only you know about one percent of them. You know, there's a truth in that, right? So I don't want to step over that. But also at the same time, I think too many people say the problem is that I can't get money. And this is not, this is entrepreneurs of all backgrounds. You know, they think money's the solution and they think money's the only problem and neither of those are true. Well, here's the double-edged sword. And what I was saying about VCs and getting in, you know, the sales job of raising money is like, all it is, is you trying to convince someone that their fears are irrational, right? right? And granted, if I walk in as a six foot one, more pounds than I want to say out loud, black man, right? And walk in, I am going to have a harder time raising money from a, a timid, non-black man often than yeah. someone who looks like them, right? Yeah. The amount of comfort you instill in someone is of meaning. And to ignore the disconnect in comfort and trust that is built or that is not built, right? Or not solved for when you don't look like the person you're raising money from is, is disrespectful to all the people who have tried and failed. That being said, If all you need is money, you will get money. What is often the case, though, and that every investor knows this, it's never just money. The money is going to go toward, it's not just you need somebody. If all you need is money, you can go to the bank, right? You still need is proof that your business works and you're the only one who believes your business works and you have no way to validate that. You're going to have a hard time getting money because money is not all you need. That's right. Right. And so it's just about being very brutally honest with ourselves about what it is we actually need. I found that I was very able and frankly, much more interested in helping people raise and grow their businesses, sometimes via capital from a position of let's figure out what you really need. And then let's put a plan together to go get that than to say, let's just get money. And that kind of is, it backs into the, the question that we're here to talk about, which is like, you know, what are deals that are not just customer driven revenue? So like I said, I love Niall's perspective, right? And so in addition to that concept of not raising money for the wrong problem, which is so key and so often done, you know, his comment that raising money is a con job and, and really in the context that you take it, you know, obviously he helps companies raise money at times and get the products right. So they're fundable. But, you know, that concept that you are just trying to allay fears of and often legitimate fears of investors to be able to raise money is, you know, is, is a, uh, you know, is real. I mean, that's, you know, that's what happens. And, you know, you're sort of making it up and 
the investors have to buy into the story. And we and everybody knows on both sides that who knows what's going to happen, right? So I love that perspective there. All right, we're going to move to Peter Dolch. And Peter was an early client of mine. I mean, God, 25 years ago, maybe even more, 30, when he founded his company, TGIX, and Thaumaturgix uh, in a technology space. And that's been a successful company for many years. And now he's moved into investing through his Aon Foundry entity. And he's got some really good insight into basically professional investment and raising money. And uh, what he talks about in this clip, which uh, is really cool, is sort of the, um, the the advantage of being part of a bigger investor group from the investor side, but then also the evolution of the structure of funding deals over time, which I think is really insightful. So let's listen to him now. Unless you're going to be deploying large amounts of capital yourself and leading deals, being part of a group that has the ability to pool money and act as a deal lead makes a fairly big difference in your ability to invest. Because for instance, with New York Angels, uh, if we have enough interested angels and we are, as a group, providing a significant amount of capital to an entrepreneur, we can control the deal terms, which is hugely advantageous. So if you are an individual angel, friends and family, if you're running a small fund yourself, you are probably following on deals and you're getting whatever terms that the lead investor negotiated. And it's possible that the lead investor didn't negotiate the best possible deal. This happens all the time. We'll, we'll come into a deal. They have a, a lead investor already. And it's a capped note with terrible terms. We have no idea why a lead investor offered these terms. We'll try to put together maybe a bigger pot of money so we can get the terms to be better. Or maybe we won't invest because the, the terms have already been, been negotiated in a way that's not favorable to the investors. So being part of a larger group helps you improve the deal terms and, and end up with a much better deal. So let's talk a little bit about uh, these deal terms. You, know, you mentioned the concept of a capped note and there are you know, debt deals, there are convertible debt deals, there are equity deals, there's all kinds of classes of equity that you might, you know, get preferred, et cetera, with different preferences. So talk to me about what you're seeing in terms of how the various ways these deals are being structured these days. Sure. And then be best, obviously, to maybe read a book on this because the industry has dramatically shifted over the last uh, 20 years. I think there was a time when preferred equity was the only form of investment or the predominant form of investment in startups. Then sometime, I don't know for what time frame it happened, the convertible note became more of a standard investment vehicle. And the, the reason that happened is because often if an entrepreneur needed some additional financing, they were very close to an inflection point, which there would be a fairly substantial multiple on the valuation. They would get a bridge round, just get them over the hump. And that bridge round would be priced at some discount off of the, the next round, which was literally two or three months around the corner. It was really a bridge round. And then for some reason, the word bridge disappeared. And we just now have the capped note that's a discount off of the next round of investment as a standard investment vehicle. So we got to that point some years back. And then Y Combinator did everyone the favor of inventing something called SAFE, which was not a favor to anyone because SAFE is little better than a whispered promise behind a barn door that maybe one day you're going to get something doesn't have the advantage of a note, at least, which is debt. So you have at least some, some body of law protecting you. And it certainly doesn't have the advantage of preferred equity, in which you're an actual owner of the company and have additional rights. Uh, really, you just have a promise with a safe. And it's uh, something that no New York angel, for instance, no, no, no member of the New York angels will accept. And when I counsel entrepreneurs about their initial fundraising strategy, I tell them, look, you, you certainly will find friends and family who don't know any better. They're going to take whatever deal terms you want. You'll find investors who are willing to accept a safe. You'll find more investors that are willing to accept a cap note. But what investors really want and what they deserve for an equity better aligns their interests with yours. And if you've got the right investors who have the right industry contacts and provide the right 
advice and potentially help provide the right governance is a huge benefit to those interests being aligned. And so it's it's like if you were walking into a car dealership and they're trying to sell you a motorcycle, you're like, but I'm here to buy a car. If you're trying to raise money, you should be offering what it is the investors would like, which is preferred equity. We've been moving away from that, unfortunately, for quite some time. So you mentioned uh, the safe and you mentioned Y Combinator, which uh, for those of us who are in this uh, game, everybody knows who it is, but not all of my fueling deals listeners may know who they are. And they are a significant uh, influencer and player in the space. So just, uh, just give us a sense or two on Y Combinator so they know what you're talking about. Y Combinator is one of the biggest incubators, launchers, investors in early stage startups based out on the West Coast. And one of the reasons for the safe, and it again follows the same trajectory as the other equity structure I decided, I described, doing a preferred equity deal requires a little bit more legal work than doing a note, which requires a little bit more work than a safe. A safe is a one page or less document that doesn't require much legal work at all. So they, they invented this product to make it cheaper and quicker for entrepreneurs to raise money, but they really did a huge disservice to the investor community because it's, it's the default for the average entrepreneur until they either learn otherwise because they find it challenging to raise money under a safe or they claim as many, not only do entrepreneurs claim this, I think they often believe it, that their interests are aligned with their investors and they are investor-friendly entrepreneurs. And the truth is what they'll find down the road is that having offered a safe to the people that took the most risk was not really being investor-friendly because the safe note does not reasonably compensate an early-stage investor for all the risk they're taking. So Peter's discussion of the move from preferred equity to cap notes to a safe is really what's happened in the industry. I mean, obviously, it's not you know every deal that's worked there, but the general way that things have moved. And obviously, he gave you the investor perspective. You know, some people on the company side might have a different perspective, but ultimately, you know what? When the perspectives align, that's when it's a great partnership. So, and I do believe in his fundamental concept with the right investors that preferred equity does align the interest. The key is it's got to be with the right investors because, you know, they're getting in there on an equity basis and sometimes people lose control of their companies eventually, but that's a whole other conversation. But we talked about some of that, you know, and the criteria for investing and what they look at and the kind of deals that they're involved in. His episode, which was episode 29. So go back and check out all these episodes uh, again. You know, this is uh, now the Deal Quest podcast. Uh, all these episodes were when we were branded as fueling deals. Talking about the same content, though. You know, if you really want to understand everything from local government, you know, and grant funding all the way up to sophisticated venture capital funding, these four people, you know, really give a good range of the gamut. So those episodes are, you know, a phenomenal to go back to. And the decision on whether to be a funded company, what type of funding, if you are, is so crucial to the success and growth and potentially not growth and, and failure of a business if done wrong, you know, it's really uh, worth listening to uh, all of these uh, phenomenal people. And I appreciate them being on the DealQuest podcast. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the Mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a Mastermind format. To sign up for the free Mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. 
Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.